Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the place for pets. And they're people who love them. Aw, he's so soft. Come here, come here, boy. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views. I'm your host, Roger Welton, coming to you from the Florida Space Coast. As always, thank you very much for joining me this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a bit of a controversial topic tonight, and it uh, never fails to stir emotions on both sides of the issue. Um, What we're talking about specifically is non-medical procedures that are performed with some regularity in veterinary medicine and in pet husbandry, specifically declaw where the claws of the kitty cat are removed to keep them from doing damage to the home. Debarking, uh, for those of you not familiar with debarking in dogs, for exceptionally barky or yappity little dogs, there is actually some veterinarians out there that will actually remove the vocal cords for the owner. And it's a procedure that is done, and um, believe it or not, more often than folks would realize. Uh, we're also talking about, I couldn't fit it in the title uh, when I we were putting together the title page for this show tonight, but um, we're also talking about tail docking and ear cropping. And for those of you not familiar with those procedures in dogs, for dogs that are not born with pointy ears, yet it's become a breed standard to have pointy ears, such as in boxers or pit bulls or mastiffs or um, Doberman pinchers, there's actually a procedure that has to be done to make them pointy, and that's called ear cropping. And, of course, for a lot of uh, dogs where the breed standard is a short, stubby tail, but they're not born with one, that has to be actually physically shortened surgically, and uh, that's called tail docking. And an example of that would be Cocker Spaniels, Doberman Pinschers, Boxers, Rottweilers. Um, these dogs are born with tails, yet the breed standard is that they don't have really much of a tail. So that's your tail docking. Uh, we also have four email questions to discuss tonight, and uh, before we get on to our topics, uh, which again I think are going to probably draw a lot of comments, and I just you know we're here to take to take your comments, and we want you to participate in the show. But folks, I've seen like on the veterinary forums or on the uh, even the pet forums, um, the discussions can get out of hand because it, again they're very polarizing issues. I would say, say your piece. Please give us intelligent, pithy comments. Uh, Keep it civil, though. And um, certainly for the ones I'm going to read on the air, I really don't discriminate with my emails, or with my email comments and questions to present to you on the air. I, you know, some of them are downright scathing of me, and I'm okay with that. You have to hear that as well. Not everyone's going to agree with what I have to say, and, and. of course, I'm going to present these topics tonight very objectively or as objectively as I can, and I'm going to also thereafter offer my opinion. This is an opinion show, so I, I would like to give you my personal take on these procedures. But um, before we get into that, let's get our, go to our first email question sent in from Francis of Destin, Florida. Destin is on the lovely, beautiful west coast of Florida. haven't been there yet, but I plan to head up there to the panhandle at some point because I hear it's... Uh, breathtaking. But anyway, thank you for your question, Francis. And um, it actually isn't a question, but it's a comment. 
This is what Francis wrote. I loved your latest YouTube show on those terrible extending retractable leashes. I hope that video goes viral as I bear the scars of a terrible rope burn on my leg from years ago that I suffered from one of those idiotic contraptions. Thanks for your shows being so relevant. Uh, For those of you who don't listen to or don't watch my YouTube broadcast that I do every other week, uh, this past topic was on those, you know, those extender slash retractable dog leashes that they sell at pet stores. Um, they, they have sort of this handle with a cartridge that you can lock the distance of the leash to whatever length you want. Some of them, some of them will extend as far as 15 to even 20 feet. And the genius of these leashes is that they, they, as they extend, only like the first three feet are like a standard leash material. Then they go down into, they taper down into this braided nylon rope that, as you heard here, is great for creating leg burn on people. These leashes are horrible because as they are let out, um, if you haven't engaged a lock mechanism or you engage it too slowly and the dog has already started pulling, you can't reel that sucker back in and people get tangled up. Um, I'm not going to get into it too much because I did a show about it on YouTube. I would say go to my blog and check that out because um, I, I talked about a true story that occurred in my waiting room that was a complete utter chaos that evolved because of one of these stupid leashes. I can't stand them so much so that I had to do a show about it. Thank you for your comment, Francis, and I appreciate you watching my YouTube show. So let's get into our topic this evening. We're talking about declaw, debarking, ear cropping, and tail docking. So let's start with declaw because that seems the one to be the one that stirs the most emotion. Now declawing essentially um, to explain exactly how the procedure is done, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I want everyone to understand exactly what this entails because a lot of folks, once they realize what's involved, um, they really think about, you know, whether or not they want to do this um, as opposed to, you know, they think they're just, you know, epilating a nail or, you know, it, no, it's a surgery and it's specifically an amputation. So I'd like you to look at your own fingers and as you bend and extend your fingers, you'll see each one of your fingers has three segments. Um, And these individual segments within your fingers are called phalanges. The first segment is phalange 1 or P1. uh, The second segment is phalange 2 or P2. And phalange 3, where your nail is, that is P3, phalange 3 or P3. So basically, when you're looking at a feline claw, um, it basically represents P3. So it's that last segment And the only way to successfully remove that nail without it growing back is to actually amputate P3. So basically, it would be equivalent to one of us having our fingertips all cut off. Now, it's not done by cutting bone. You're slicing through ligament. So, um, you know, it's not, uh, you're not cracking bone. and, And that certainly helps. But of course, you know, again, realize it is an amputation. And what does that mean? Well, basically, when the kitty's recovering, they have to learn to walk on their feet without that extra phalange. And specifically, they have to learn to walk now without, you know, gripping into the ground. And there's an adjustment period, of course. There is some pain involved. Um, It is an amputation. There's a skin incision. There is an, an incision across the ligaments that hold that last segment of the digit on there. And, um, you know, there, there is a period of discomfort and, um, Basically, 
it's not something to take lightly. Um, you really want to think about uh, whether or not to have your cat declawed. Now, the most common reason, of course, is uh, because some kitties will engage in this sort of sharpening behavior of their claws where they will actually start sharpening their claws on household furniture or drapes or even walls, start tearing them to shreds. People get frustrated and they will opt to have their claws, the claws of their kitty declawed. They don't want to get rid of the cat. They love the cat, but at the same time, they also love their home. So they opt to declaw the kitty. Now, that's not always the case, though, because sometimes people that maybe are on their third or fourth cat in their lifetime had their first one way back when declawed, and they assume that's something they automatically want to do when they get the new cats. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've engaged in some conversation with these folks because I, I really, I think that while I'm not necessarily for a ban on feline declaws, I think, I think that kind of legislation leads down a slippery slope, just like I don't think it's a good idea to legislate morality on the, on the side of, you know, human behavioral legislation. I, I, I don't think that it's a good idea to legislate, uh, Clause. I don't think they should be banned. I think it's a mistake what happened in California. I'll get into my reasons why um, in, in just a moment, but it's certainly not because I enjoy doing declaws. In fact, I try to talk clients out of it if I can. And the bottom line is that let's let's start with with issue one here. We shouldn't be automatically jumping to declaw a cat just because it has claws. Um, you know, many cats won't engage in destruction of the home. And if they do start to engage in that, there are alternatives that you can try. Some are viable alternatives. Some of them are downright ridiculous. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit too. So, you know, that's the first thing I want to talk about. When you look at the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, that is our governing body with regard to ethics, with regard to uh, policy, with regard to vaccines, standard of care, all that sort of thing. So when on the subject of declaws, their official position is that they are advocating for uh, declaw to be performed only by a licensed veterinarian with proper pain management standards. However, they should be done only after all other options have been exhausted, meaning that try everything else first. First of all, just give the cat a chance. You know, a lot of them will not be destructive. And I mean, case in point, I have three cats, two of them, while they may be destructive because they're just a couple of crazy cats that, you know, plow things off the counters and just don't learn <laughs> um, and cause, you know, all kinds of problems. In fact, we got to put them in their own room at night. We, my wife and I will call, call them the Bobo Brothers because these two cats will just, like, have a frat party in the house. Clawing up the furniture is not something they do. I never declawed those cats. Um, now, I have a third cat, Enrique. Enrique, even with his declawed hands, we did declaw him years ago, back when we were still living in New York, that cat's still trying to destroy my furniture. He hates scratching posts, and he resented, um, you know, any other means to try to to try to try circumvent the behavior. And again, we'll get into some means of that. And, and basically, we had to make a choice. Enrique's an outdoor cat, or we declaw the boy. And, um, you know, he certainly was not, he's not, he's kind of a uh, prissy cat, and, and, and being an outdoor cat was not something that uh, I thought would have been a good quality of life for him. So we actually had him declawed. But we gave him the chance. Always give them the chance. Um, and that would be point number one. Number two, if the cat uh, if, if the cat is starting to show 
that is wanting to sharpen its claws on your furniture or you know on the walls or, or any any uh, anything in the home that that you deem valuable that you don't want destroyed by claws. You want to discourage the behavior, and one of the ways you can do that is simply just go out and buy a scratching post. Um, a lot of cats, given the option, uh, will prefer to scratch on a scratching post to, you know, embark on that behavior. But you know, they're not, they're not going to hurt the scratching post. In fact, um, a lot of them really prefer it because it's just it's a better method that can really dig their claws in. And again, for example, my two Bobo brother cats, they have this whole big cat condo that we got them. But um, part of it is, you know, there's scratching posts along the climbing post, and they just claw at this thing all day long, and it's wonderful, and they really don't hurt the furniture at all. So in that regard, that's your second thing that you can try. And, you know, beyond that, that's where it starts to get a little dicey because, not, you know, cats are very individual little creatures. They're like little snowflakes, and what one cat loves, the next cat may despise. And not every cat is going to take two scratching posts, as is the case with my cat Enrique. He just has no interest. We threw catnip in there. No interest. So, you know, on one hand, I can sort of understand where if people have no other option, they opt for the declaw because, you know what, just because you love cats doesn't mean you have to necessarily choose between the pet you love and having a decent home. We all have the right to have a decent home. Um you know, and and to some degree, you sacrifice a little bit of the home when you choose to have pets. But you know, there is a limit. You want, you know, I love having a leather couch. I love my leather couches. I I love to lounge on them. They're so comfortable. And you know what? I, I'm I'm not going to give that up for 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 a pet. I'm just not. And and I don't blame anybody else. And you know, I don't want to throw away three thousand um, dollars because you know I I chose to let my cat destroy my house. I'm just you know. Call me what you may, but I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna choose having somewhat of a decent home, uh, or not having somewhat of a decent home. You know, so a cat doesn't have to go through a declaw procedure. However, I'm gonna try everything else, and I really implore everybody else that they should. Now, a lot of the declaw, um, anti-declaw people that really are pushing for a nationwide ban, um, will bring up the fact. Well, you know what? If they won't use a scratching post, then then how about this? How about corking the nails and this is a a, a sort of a, a technique where there's these little like acrylic corks that you can put on the nails and you fit them on each individual nail and you know basically it covers the nails and it's like uh it's like putting fake nails like a, a lady putting fake nails on the end of her her nails only these are blunt and the cat can scratch and no damage is going to occur but here's the caveat to that <laughs> um First off, they don't go on all that easily. You have to be able to pin that cat down for a good 10 minutes to apply them on the front claws. Secondly, they have to be redone every two to three months because as the nail grows out, they fall off, and then you need to replace them. So every three months, you're pinning the cat down for 10 minutes. And believe me, I've seen people get torn up. I've seen people get bitten. I've seen people resort to bringing them to the office for us to put the corky things on the nails, and the cat's flipping out and peeing itself, and crapping, and spitting, and hissing, and imagine going through that every two to three months. It's not for everybody. There are some docile cats out there that'll hang around and let you plug those things on there, and hey, if you're willing to do that every two to three months, if somebody's willing to do that, and you have a cat that's pretty pliable for it, go for it. You know, I'd say, if I can avoid that declaw procedure, I want to. 
Um, but here's what I really believe, though. I believe that we have to retain the option to do so because if we don't retain the option to do so, I can't tell you how much more problematic the homeless cat situation would be in terms of they, they'd be getting turned into shelters in droves. We'd be overwhelmed. We're already overwhelmed in the shelters. And I would say any any procedure that stands to uh, get cats, more cats in a home, well cared for, um, I, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm really okay with. Um, at the same time, I'm not pushing for it, and, and I certainly would – uh, advise people, and I do advise people to to try to seek other options first. Go for that as a last resort, but certainly we don't want to take away the option because I really do think a lot of cats would lose their homes. Um, so so that's my opinion on it. Um, you know, try to exercise other options. I don't push for it. I don't sell it as a procedure. And that's one really thing that one thing that really gets my gourd is when you know some of these uh, animal rights activists sit, turn around and accuse veterinarians that do the procedure. They accuse us of not wanting to give up that money, not wanting to give up the revenue of a declaw. That is such a load of crap. And and anybody who's going to spout out that rhetoric, you just don't. You're spouting it really being ignorant and not understanding the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is most vets do not like doing declaws, don't enjoy doing declaws, don't want the money from the declaws. We do them as an option because we feel it is the owner's right in the end to have that done. And if we're going to do it, if it's going to be done, we're going to do it with the best pain relief available. And I'll get into that in just a moment. But but to tell me that I'm being greedy and I don't want to give up that money, that is a load of crap. Let me tell you how many declaws I do per year. Maybe three, maybe four. And why is that? Number one is the awareness out there that it's not a walk in the park, that it is an amputation, people understanding what it is, knowing there's other options. Education has really helped. And where is that education coming from? Lots of times it's coming from us. So, you know, to, to be told by some animal rights activists that I'm pushing people to declaw those cats because I'm cruel and I pick money over uh, humanity, that is a bunch of BS. I'm trying to steer them away from it. So those three, maybe four declaws I do a year, you know what? You can compare it to the growth of my practice where I'm doing a lot of other services that are medically necessary, that make me a lot more money than declaws, I could take them or leave them. I really don't enjoy doing them. I don't like doing them. But in the cases where they are done, I'd like people to under, to do some research because like in every profession, not all veterinarians are created equal. And one of the things in my generation of veterinarians and moving forward was drummed into our brains is that pain management is good medicine. So most of us have compassion for the animal and we want to do good pain management just because it's the right thing to do, because we don't want them to hurt. But let's say you're not a warm and fuzzy person. You really don't really care if they're in pain. Well, it's good medicine, too. So you know what? Your statistics are going to be better. Your healing rates are going to be faster. You're going to be a more popular veterinarian by doing good pain management. One of the things that sort of got lost in the older generations of veterinarians and some of the younger veterinarians that unfortunately get mentored by some of these guys is that they don't have the same focus on pain management because they're not perceiving the pain like we're perceiving the pain. Um, because the animals don't vocalize, they're not necessarily crying or whimpering, and especially cats aren't going to sit there and cry and whimper. That's not what they do. Um, we're going by heart rate to manage pain, and we're just assuming that if they're going through a procedure, that on the equivalent human side, there's going to be pain associated 
with it. We're just going to assume there's going to be a pain, a pain associated with this procedure. And certainly with declaws, there is a certain degree of pain. So you want to make sure you're working with a veterinarian that is really imploring the absolute best pain management technology available. So what does that entail? Number one is we want to give them a preoperative injection with an opioid, meaning a morphine derivative, uh, derivative pain medication. Um, I actually like to give morphine itself directly. I think it's great. It's um, inexpensive compared to the other ones. It works really well. Then uh, I, I like to do a, a nerve block down by the end of the pause uh, where you can actually inject bupivacaine, which is a, uh, a numbing agent. And if you if you apply it strategically, you can actually uh, numb up the ends of those paws where the, the benefit to that is that if you decrease the pain at the site of the D-club before you do it, um, it's called the, the pain gate theory. Postoperative pain is going to be less. So you've numbed those pain channels beforehand so the postoperative pain is less. But still, we don't take that for granted. I follow up with a second morphine injection after the procedure, and then I fit the kitty with a fentanyl patch. A fentanyl patch is a morphine derivative medication that's in a basically impregnated in a patch. We shave a little square on the side of the kitty, and we stick that fentanyl on them. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, cats love fentanyl. They absolutely love it. They're high. They're happy. Um, even if we had an aggressive cat beforehand, well, that's a happy cat on that fentanyl. They're eating well. They're making biscuits with their bandaged feet, with their pressure bandages on. And with them being so comfortable and willing to use those feet in a very quick manner, well, using the feet actually stimulates the healing even faster. My results in doing it in this manner, being aggressive about pain relief, um, have been really, really good where that the kitties come back two weeks post-op. Things have gone really well for the most part. Barring any unforeseen complications, they do really well and they never look back. Now, again, is it a walk in the park? No. Do I want a cat to go through that? No. But if it's a last-ditch effort and, you know, it's either this or the kitties not going to have a home anymore, I'm going to do it. If it's going to encourage more adoptions, sorry, I'm going to do it. That is my position, and I'm going to stand by it. I've stood by it for years. The situation in California, I don't like it. I don't think it should be banned. I think educating the public has gone a long way to decreasing the number of declaws that are be being done in states where it's legal, which is the rest of the 49 states. Um, and I think our overall goal is to have less of these cats declawed and, again, convince owners to try other options first and, you know, Whereas many years ago, a lot, a lot more cats were getting declawed. You know, you talk to your average vet, we're not doing a whole lot of them because none of us enjoy doing them. Um, it's not revenue that we want. And in the end, um, you know, your average vet is only doing three or four a, a year, and that's, that's pretty good. So education is the big thing there. So we're going to move on to debarking in a second. But before we go on to debarking, I want to go on to our next email question sent in by Deanna of Reading, Pennsylvania. Here we go. Now, this is with regard to, let me just give a little background before I talk about her comment. And it's really a comment, not a question. Our last veterinary advice, Animal News and Views, was talking about statistically how cats are overlooked for wellness care in comparison to dogs. And here's her comment. 
Sorry, Doc. Sorry, Doc. But the reason cats are overlooked for wellness care is that they do seem to care for themselves. That is part of the lore of having a cat as a pet. They are simply low maintenance. I can understand why you would push for stool testing and vaccines for cats to go outside. In fact, if someone has cats that spend even part of the time outside, I agree it is completely irresponsible to not have them updated with wellness care. But if, like my cat, it spends all of its time inside, has no chance of getting out because my apartment is on the top floor, I'm sorry, but there is really no threat of parasites or diseases. I do not see the point of stressing my cat every year for a visit he does not need. If he's acting sick at any time, believe me, I love him, and I will get him to the vet in a heartbeat. This is the way I've always handled my cats, and it has served them well, all having lived fat and happy to ripe old ages. Well, Deanna, I I can't argue with success, and yes, you are right. The overall risk of disease to these uh, cats that live the lifestyle that your kitty is living certainly is minimal. However, state law requires in any state I've ever been in, that there is an updated rabies vaccine because that is a human health hazard. So you are in violation of the law by not doing that. But hey, everybody reserves the right to break the law if they want, as long as they're willing to deal with the consequences. So here's the consequences. Say your kitty gets sick. He's got really no exposure to the vet. The whole trip there and being there is going to be very overwhelming for him. He may bite somebody. Well, in the process, if he bites somebody... He's not up to date on a rabies vaccine. Guess what? He's got to be quarantined. You get fined. The quarantine is done at your expense. In some states, it can be done in the veterinary clinic. It can be very expensive. Some of these quarantines are six months long. You're paying boarding fees for six months. But there are some states that won't let you do it at a veterinary clinic. They'll actually make you do it at their central county facility. And these facilities, believe me, you wouldn't like the idea of your cat staying there. So that's one risk you take. Um, but it is a free country, and uh, you know if that's if that's your position, I respect that. Um, just to let you know, with when it comes to wellness care, some of the things I pick up on, for, you know, from indoor cats, weight loss, which could indicate early stage kidney failure, diabetes, or hyperthyroidism, plus a slew of other diseases. Um, I find a lot of apartment cats occasionally will get little flea infestations. And you might not notice them, but because the, the cat, you know, fastidiously grooms them out. But guess what? Those fleas have left the kitty a little present. Tapeworms. Tapeworms in cats, overwhelmingly, majority of cases come from fleas. They groom the fleas out. They eat the flea. The infective larvae of the tapeworm lives in the gut of the flea. Your kitty has tapeworms. So, you know, I always will still maintain wellness care yearly. That's equivalent to a person going every five years, if you put it into the same context. Um, you know, I still think it's the right thing to do. But, uh, again, we're here to hear all opinions. And, uh, Deanna, I'm sure you're a very loving cat owner, and uh, you have the right to your opinions. Moving along, we are going to get into debarking. So what is debarking? This is a really interesting thing. Some people love dogs, but don't care to hear them barking. Um so they choose to have them debark. Basically, their their voice mechanism is removed, their vocal cords are removed, and the procedure is called, uh, well, it can be called debarking, it could also be called canine devocalization. Uh, basically, it's a, it's a throat surgery that is done, and the entry point for the surgery 
uh, is from the neck. Uh, the, the, the veterinarian actually makes the incision directly into the larynx or voice box and basically just removes those vocal cords. And the end result is when the dog goes to bark, instead of hearing roof, roof, you hear har, 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 har. So it's much quieter. And um, probably not done as commonly as declaws are done in cats. Uh, but they are done with some degree of regularity. I don't do them um, because uh, I just I just never got into it, and it just really became something I just don't want to learn how to do. So um, I never really got into that particular procedure. But, you know, I had this uh, client a few years back when I first took over the hospital. She had a passion for affin pinchers. She absolutely loved affin pinchers. And they are cute little dogs. They look like little Ewoks. And they're uh, adorable, but they also are very talkative. And uh, this this was a lady who couldn't just have one of those dogs. Um, this lady had to have like six at any given time. And so you have a barkety little breed to begin with. Even solo, they're going to bark. But if you have them in a pack situation, one sets off the alarm. You have, you know, six little creatures barking their ever-loving little heads off. So she didn't like that part of the affin picture. She loved everything else about them, though. So what she would do is she'd get a new dog. And, you know, just like people will have the, the spayer neuter perform standardly, she'd have the spayer neuter. But she wouldn't have it done by me because she wanted the spay neuter as well as a debarking procedure done. And she did it with every dog. Um, you know, and that's how she, she handled things. And uh, she never had complications. And uh, affin pinchers are fairly wimpy little dogs when it comes to pain threshold and you know really if they were in a great deal of pain post-operatively they're generally going to let you know in in a majority of cases and what I would do is I remove the sutures for her so she wouldn't have to go all the way down to South Florida to the one doctor who did them on the east coast here Um, I would remove the sutures for her as a courtesy because she was a good client a nice lady and uh, you know they they did pretty well and uh, again it's hard to argue with success Uh, but you know (laughs) My suggestion to people who don't want to hear a barking dog but, but want to have a dog, maybe pick a breed that doesn't bark so much, you know. Uh, maybe Affin Pincher isn't the way to go. Maybe consider getting a uh, a Basenji. <laughs> uh, that's a little dog, a spirited little little guy, playful, beautiful, um, and uh, but they don't bark. Basenjis are barkless dogs. Uh, genetically, they were uh, selectively bred to not be very talkative, and even... The ones that are that are that want to vocalize and express themselves, they don't really bark. They kind of do this kind of we call it the basenji howl. Pick a basenji. They're going to be quiet. They're going to run around. They're going to be playful. They're going to be fun. Uh, maybe even more fun than affin pinchers. You know, uh, they could be lap dogs too. They could be very sweet. I have uh, clients that absolutely adore their basenjis and they don't bark. So that's one thing you can do. You know, maybe if barking's not for you, perhaps. Affin Pincher or Yorkie or Jack Russell Terrier or Shih Tzu or Lhasa or, you know, pick your barkety little dog. Maybe that's not the right way to go. Maybe go with a big dog. They tend to be quieter. Um, my Labrador is a pretty quiet boy. It takes a lot to get him to bark. And uh, and maybe not, you know, maybe don't have a whole pack of dogs. Perhaps consider maybe just having a couple of them. Or maybe just one dog. You know, do you have to have six at any given time when you're a single person uh, living by yourself, I don't know. I, I just there there's there's ways around this. So I would say, you know, again, the AVMA's official position on debarking is the same as it is on declaw. Exhaust all options available to you. One of the things is 
try maybe a a less barkety breed if that's not your cup of tea to hear dogs barking. The other thing you can consider is uh, trying an anti-bark collar. Um, now, anti-bark collars, I don't like the ones that deliver an electric static shock. I find those are a little mean, and they can be especially cruel to these little dogs that are just so sensitive. I prefer the ones that actually squirt citronella on the dog's nose every time they bark. They can be very effective. And uh, not all dogs bark the same, so you could have like one dog that's especially yappity where maybe the other one, the other couple in the house aren't so barky. And it's that, I call them the town crier, that one dog that's going to bark if like a pin drops. You know, what happens with that one dog is it's, it is basically the town crier. It's setting all the other ones off to start barking. So maybe pick that one alpha barker, you know, and, and throw a, a, an anti-bark collar on him. And that, that mist of citronella that hits him in the nose, it's humane. It doesn't hurt. But citronella is a, a resin that's very odorific. Um, it has a very strong scent, and, and it's enough to discourage a lot of these dogs from barking. Maybe try that. Rather than just get them automatically debarked, have them automatically fit with a, a anti-bark citronella collar. And maybe maybe in that regard, uh, you can train them from a young age to not be so barkety. I mean, it's worth a try. And if it doesn't work out, you can always have them debarked at a later time. But I'm not a fan of the procedure. I probably care for it as little as I care for D-claws. Um, only D-claws aren't really that technical. Um, there's not a lot, you know, of course you want to be good at them. I'm, I don't, I don't want to, you know, belittle, uh, that the fact that good technique needs to be administered when doing a D claw, but they're very easy to learn. Most vets have done them. So most of us, most of us have been mentored in the procedure. Debarking is not something we learn in vet school. Um, it's not something that is really mainstream that the vets really do. So most of us don't really, uh, get involved in that uh, right out of vet school, and, and I was never mentored in it, so I just don't care to do it. And to be honest, I haven't seen that lady in a few years. Uh, I don't know if she moved or what or whatever. I haven't seen her, and uh, since her, I haven't had the request for a debarking procedure, so I'm very glad to say that. Um, so we're going to move on to talk about ear cropping and tail docking. And, um, you know, we'll get to that in just a minute before we move on to these next topics. So I'd like to... Uh, address our, another email question. We have four total. Um, this one is from Janice of West Islip, New York. And here's her question. I have a typical, a horrible tick problem. I have my home and yard treated and been treating both of my labs, first with Frontline and now with Advanced Ticks. I'm still seeing ticks on my dogs and I'm at my wit's end. We have a lot of Lyme disease in this area and I am just terrified that my dogs or me or my husband are going to get it. Do you have any recommendations? <clears throat> Sorry, I'm sniffling so much. It's uh, prime allergy season here in Florida, and kind of feeling the effects of that. I do apologize. It's kind of obnoxious to be sniffling in the in the microphone. But anyway, let me address uh, Janice's consultation here. Uh, yes, Long Island, uh, West Ice Slip is in Long Island, and uh, I actually used to work on the North Shore in Huntington uh, the first three years of my veterinary career. The tick situation there can be very difficult, and yes, Lyme disease is rampant. I diagnose about five new cases a month when I work there, um, and I hear it's getting worse. So um, the primary mode of transmission, the vector for Lyme disease, is the deer tick. And specifically, the tick has to feed on the dog for 36 to 72 hours to successfully transmit the organism to the dog. So killing the ticks is essential in preventing Lyme disease. Also, though, they are a nuisance. They can cause primary skin disease. And if we're not staying ahead of them, breaking that life cycle with good treatment, uh, they can be very problematic. And and I've been there myself as a pet owner. 
I've seen some bad tick problems as a veterinarian. So frontline and advanced ticks are okay products uh, for ticks, but realistically, until recently, we never really had a good tick-killing option. Uh, and now we do. Um, there's two actually out there. There's prevent tick collars that are pretty darn good. They're impregnated with a compound called Amitraz. And Amitraz is pretty effective in killing ticks, certainly better than frontline. And advanced ticks, where it has limitations because it's a collar that goes around the neck, sometimes in the lower extremities between the toes, ticks can still survive. So that one does have some limitations, but still a much more effective product than frontline and advanced ticks. But there is a new product out, um, actually made by the company Muriel, who um, actually are, were also the manufacturers of Frontline. And their new product is called CertEffect. And CertEffect has the same flea-killing ingredient that Frontline has, but it has this additional ingredient, Amitraz. It's actually the active ingredient in the Preventiculer uh, uh, collars, but it's impregnated in the solution. The concentration is much lower, and it translocates more effectively to the distal extremities, um, like the toes and the end of the tail and places like that. Uh, and we're finding that t ticks will start dying like within five minutes of application of this stuff. It's brand new, um, so your vet may not carry it yet. I've started to carry it because uh, I'm in Florida and ticks are a year-round problem here. So um, I, I've really liked the results thus far. It seems very safe. So third effect, you could ask your vet to order it for you. You could also look online and see if any of the pet pharmacies have it available at this point. Um, so, you know, there's your solution. You know, try maybe prevent tick collar if that's what's readily available. Try to get your hands on some cert effect if you can, though. That's going to be your best option. Um, so moving on to our uh, topic here, which we started with declaw in cats. We started, we talked about uh, debarking in, in dogs. And now let's talk about uh, ear cropping and tail docking. Now, these procedures really have no medical necessity. Um, they don't even have a convenience necessity for the owner, uh, you know, where the debarking could be a nuisance, could get people evicted, uh, you know, the, if, the, if the dog excessively yapping. Um, I was once threatened with eviction because my mutt was, was barking too much when I first adopted her. And certainly a cat with claws who's refusing to use a scratching post can destroy a home. But when it comes to tail docking and ear cropping, you know, these are procedures that do nothing but provide cosmetics really they're giving the animal the look that we humans deem appropriate and uh as such i you know i think that's kind of appalling i think that we're putting these animals through something that they really don't need to be and and uh and i don't agree with them in all honesty and i don't perform either of those procedures nor do i ever plan to um so let's talk about how they're done so the ear or the the tail docking is actually done when the puppies are two days old and at that age, the ligaments and everything are very loose. Um, every Everything sort of comes apart a lot easier. And uh, the standard way this is done, this is it's kind of barbaric, but this is the truth. A clamp is applied uh, at the site of the excision. Um, and then a clamp is applied behind that. These clamps are so tight that they cut off blood supply. That you know, These are actual hemostats, they're called. So the clamps are placed. They're twisted in opposite directions. And the the clamp uh that's oriented you know towards the end of the tail uh basically just comes right off and now they're left with this tail that's essentially just kind of twisted off and then the veterinarian throws two absorbable sutures uh all of this while the puppy's wide awake and you know you can't do anesthesia at that age 
it comes apart very easily, which is why it's done at that age. Of course, they don't remember it, but boy, do you see those puppies squealing. Um, and, and you know, some, some breeders will justify it by saying, oh, it's no worse than a baby getting circumcised. No, it is worse. <laughs> it is worse because you're actually performing a tail amputation. You're actually amputating a segment of the tail. Um, the circumcision, while it's not fun, is a flap of skin, uh, not nearly as painful. And they actually apply a numbing gel uh, prior to doing it. And uh, it's not nearly the same comparison. So that's the tail docking. That's how it's done. Um, if a, the puppies reach a certain age, generally once they open their eyes, um, and the tail dockings haven't been done, at that point really it's too late because then it becomes, from the view of most veterinarians, exceptionally cruel. You wait until after they're, you know, to the time they're spayed or neutered. And at that point, if they want the docking done, it's treated as a proper amputation under anesthesia, you know, with a tourniquet applied, it's basically a full-out amputation done, you know, as a general surgery. Um, but, uh, you know, really, you're just doing it for cosmetics, and uh, there's no other reason for it. So the ear cropping is a little different. Basically, to make those ears stand up and point, you know, these are floppy-eared dogs uh, by their nature, so we call them pendulous ears. Um, they don't come with any semblance of wanting to point those ears. So you actually have to trim away two-thirds of the ear cartilage and turn them into this point. And then you have to, uh, you know, suture the edges and then uh, put corks on them and then wrap them tight so they stick up. The little puppies look like, like you know, basically they're wearing antennas on their head. And uh, this procedure is generally done at about three months of age. Um, and they're generally done before the puppies are even sold. Uh so uh, they have the cosmetics that people are looking for. Now, let's talk about, you know, that now that procedure is done under anesthesia, but still it's, it, it can be painful. I've seen some post-operative infections that, you know, have gotten pretty ugly. And, uh, you know, it's just not necessary. So let's talk about, like, the aesthetics of these things. Breed standards. Now, every developed Western civilized country that has, uh, you know, kennel clubs, and dog shows, um, have rejected uh, cropped ears as a breed standard. They've actually rejected it, and the, the, many of them are actually starting to move towards also rejecting uh, tail docking as well. But because tail docking is done when they're only two days old, uh, some of these you know international kennel clubs are still uh, you know allowing that as a breed standard. But uh, the ear cropping overwhelmingly has been dismissed as a breed standard of course, except for the United States. Now, I don't know what it is about the United States when it comes to being progressive about this kind of stuff. We're always last <laughs> on everything when it comes to animal rights. I don't know why that is, but, you know, we're always lagging behind. And, of course, the AKC, the American Kennel Club, still maintains the breed standard of, you know, if a dog is going to be shown, if it's going to be bred, it should have, uh, you know, these the ear cropping. And so they're not letting that go just yet. But I think that if, you know, petitions start going out there, if the veterinarians start putting a little pressure on them to lose that as a breed standard, I think that uh, eventually, I would say in the near future, that's going to go away. Um, but, you know, and I look at the boxers that have their ears and I look at the mastiffs and I look at the, the pit bulls and I look at the um, the Doberman pinchers that have their ears. And they're just, I think it's a much softer look. They're better looking. Um, you know they 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 look more like dogs, and uh, it takes kind of a fierceness out of their. It takes out some of that fierceness that that you know some of them have, and 
So I'm just I'm really not in agreement with the cosmetic procedures. I don't believe in procedures that are cosmetic. I have a little bit of an issue with the declaw and the debarking if other options haven't been tried, and we talked about all that. And that's my general position on everything. And uh, you know, take that as you will. I'm really interested to see what the comments are going to be, both on the blog and also emailed uh, to me to address in the next upcoming episode. So I'll leave you with that, ladies and gentlemen. I have one more uh, email. Uh, let's see. This is an actual question. So it's an email question from Rebecca of Melbourne, Florida. That would be a local listener. And here's her question. This will be the last. Um, this will be the the, the last. Uh, piece of the evening. My three-year-old male neutered cat is peeing all over my house. He was neutered young, so I don't see why he would be spraying. What could be causing this and how do I stop it? Okay, this is a good question because, you know, right away, Rebecca seems to be jumping to a the conclusion that it's a behavioral issue. So it's not likely spraying because he was neutered young. Um, typically, spraying is going to happen on vertical surfaces, so they're wanting to spray on walls. They're wanting to spray on, you know, the edges of couches. They're not spraying on the ground. They, they're trying to mark vertical places. So um, if the pee is occurring straight down on the ground, then we can rule out uh, spraying as, as uh, the cause. So as far as why a cat would do this, I, I'm thinking medical first. So male cats uh, can, can get urinary tract infections, but they're also, uh, they tend to have a higher tendency to uh, get a particular a urinary tract disease called idiopathic cystitis. And this is kind of a weird thing because we don't really haven't pinpointed what causes it. But idiopathic cystitis basically is an inflammation that occurs within the lower urinary tract. It looks like urinary tract infection. It's painful when they urinate. Lots of times it makes them associate the litter box with the painful urination. So they'll avoid it because of that. Um, and of course, if they're passing urinary crystals or have urinary stones, that can also uh, cause them urinary pain. So infection idiopathic cystitis, uh, potential crystals, and or stones. Um, you want to rule these things out before you necessarily uh, assume that it's a behavioral issue because most of the time, the majority of cases, when this suddenly starts, um, there's a medical reason I, I would find in most cases. And if there is a medical reason, you want to get that kitty relief as soon as possible. So my suggestion is get him to about as soon as you can. Um, if there's a medical problem, let's fix that and then see if he'll go back to normal. Um, if ultimately the urine's tested and there's no sign of inflammation or disease, then we assume it's a behavioral problem. Then you could try things like feel-away diffusers. These are plug-in diffusers that emit a, uh, a feline pheromone that's scentless to us, but to them it's very soothing. Uh, that's one way that some of these behavioral urination cats can can be made to to not do that. There's also antidepressant therapy. If they're doing if they're doing the uh, behavior because of some underlying anxiety. Um, an antidepressant like amitriptyline or even Prozac can be safely administered. It's inexpensive and has a, uh, those drugs have a lot of precedence for use of behavioral disorders in cats. So that's another option, but let's not just jump to behavioral solutions. I want to make sure there's not a medical problem first. Well, that wraps it up for the evening. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, again, a most controversial uh, topic evening, uh, evening and um, I'm looking forward to see your comments. And uh, we will go over those next time. Have a great evening, everyone. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.